0: This thing on.
1: Yesterday's price is not today's price.
0: Brett, welcome to the Run of the Numbers podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: I'm pleased to be here.
0: So, you were the first sales ops and sales strategy person at Salesforce. I wanted to talk a bit about capacity planning and ratios. Uh, we're going to go nerd out and go deep for for a lot of the CFOs and finance people listening. Can you speak to what you learned about staffing ratios and building sales capacity at Salesforce in in those very early days?
1: Before Salesforce, I'd worked at an on-premise company. And, um, you know, for those that are old enough, back in the day, you would, on-premise means it's on a CD. Maybe people don't know what that means.
0: Yeah. Would you ship it
1: to them? (laughs) You would ship it to them. They would then hire Anderson Consulting to spend two million dollars to configure it, and then you came up with a new release, and you sent them a new CD, and they had to re spend the same money to put the same changes before. So it was an interesting time, but back then, like you had like an enterprise sales team that would fly around, and you kind of make the quarter. If not, you'd have layoffs. Or like if you went down market, it was like through it through VARs. Or um, if you were low end, you would sell it at fries. Like, that's what it used to be. So, you know, it was interesting for me uh, when I considered joining Salesforce. I'm an operational metrics guy. My first honest job was running a factory at a college. And um, I remember I saw TJ uh, Rogers, who's a famous entrepreneur at Cypress Semiconductor, and and uh, some speech. And he was like, people... In your careers, you either make shit or you sell shit or you're bullshit. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm bullshit. But then when I met with Mark and I looked at Salesforce and I figured out the SaaS model, I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Um, you could sell direct to many segments of a market um, and you weren't constrained by the delivery model. But you had to get the metrics uh, and the model down. right. You had to map Like pricing and packaging, um, the ease of use of the product, uh, how you brought in demand, what the skill set of the individual was. And what was exciting was, at least when I looked at Salesforce, because they had a view to to sell to very small and to very large orgs over time, you could build your own army, which is very exciting, right? And so like today at Salesforce, you know, if you look at presidents or whatever the chief titles of people that run entire countries, um, I certified them as an SDR back in the day right? Um, You know, just handling the phones. So, you know, from a staffing ratio, it's important. I joined Salesforce. I think we had maybe less than 20 reps, uh, primarily selling down market and just starting to invest in field reps. We called it the enterprise experiment. Um, And so when I think of staffing ratios and I think about sales capacity, you know, back then, the number one question I had to answer for, so if you're in RevOps or Finance or sales ops or whatever it is, is where do we add the next incremental hire for maximum yield, right? And so the question is, how would you sort of determine that? And remember, at the time, we did not raise a lot of venture. I think Salesforce 401 Public had raised less than $50 million in venture. And I don't think, I think half of that was secondary. Um, And remember, we had to build our own we had, to, we had to build our own data centers. There was no AWS or the rest of it. So we had to use a lot of our capital to build, if you will, um, you know, the first hosting center. So it wasn't like we had a bunch of flush cash. So we were very focused on and being efficient. So general broad staffing ratios, and I and the boards that I'm on, the CFOs and the CEOs get very annoyed because I'm going to ask them the same question. First question I ask them is Do you have are 20% of your employees account executives? And if they're not, why not? I'm like, why do you ask that, et cetera, et cetera? So listen, at the end of the day, there are two drivers of growth within a software company. The number of qual- high-quality developers you have to build good product, and the number of quota-carrying account executives. And if you get below 20%, of your employees, you're out of whack. You're just out of whack. Because if you can't make 80% of the FTEs, make 20% of the FTEs successful, something is wrong. You should stop spending and re go back and look at your, you know, what's going on there. And so what happens is, and I've seen this now with a number of companies. Yeah, you know, look, we overfunded companies in the last five to seven years. We changed the goalpost, the goalpost, when do I raise next? As opposed to like, this is a business. Um, um, how do the economics work and how do you, how are you, you know, basically drive you know, balancing growth um, and, if, and spend. Right. And the reality was um, like this idea of you get to go burn, 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 um well not really you only really get to burn if you can drive a lot of growth and if your if your magic number makes sense you know if your sales efficiency because and you have low retention then it makes sense to invest ahead of the curve because you know the LTV that long term revenue stream is quite high so the number one ratio first and foremost when i look at sales organizations 20% of all your aes have to be um employees have to be aes and No more than 50% of your overall sales expense, and I put SDR, Sales Management, Sales Ops Enablement, is in sales expense. No more than 50% of your expense can be a non-AE expense because then you're just too fat, it's too hard to make the salespeople effective, and then you hire a bunch of overhead. Right, because when you go dig into the magic number and go look at the cost of the sales and marketing, you go look in at sales and look at the expense and you try to figure out what expense is actually people who have quota and what is the expense of everybody who's there to help them. There's a movie called I'm Going to Get You, Sucker, by Robert Townsend. This was back when they were doing black exploitation spoof movies, and I'm Going to Get You, Sucker was done by the Wayans Brothers. And um, the, there's the, the the protagonist, the hero, you 're know, like a Shaft hero. And he gets out of jail and he's walking out of jail and he's got these great shoes with like fish in his like glass heels. It's hilarious, but there's seven people walking behind him. It's like a band and some guys like who, who are those guys? He's like, Oh, that's my theme music. And the challenge in a lot of sales orgs, you got one salesperson and there's like, you need an entire band behind them just to close a deal. And so if that's the case, you kind of have to go relook at that. So those are two ratios. Um, look very closely at the other thing we did from a hiring perspective. So you say, okay, we're going to go hire 10 reps. And here's the ratio of SDR or management or sale, whatever that ratio is, we would always lag them a quarter. You always lag the supporting staff a quarter. Mm.
0: Why'd you do that?
1: Because if you didn't, what would happen? Cause it's really hard to hire. It's not, it's not that it's not hard to hire great people, but if you're very, intentional about what's a great rep. Um, what If you didn't put that lag, what would happen is people would hire all the support staff before you had the rep. And so that was something that, you know, in working with Mark, very sort of religious about. Um, and then in terms of staffing ratios and sales capacity, um, you know, I think uh, thinking about segmentation so, look, we can have rough sales capacity ratios, what percentage of AEs should, people should be employee uh, employees should be AEs, what the support staff is. But when you're doing that and trying to figure out next incremental hire, you have to really understand your business. And look, businesses that are smaller, I invest at the seed stage, we do not encourage them to try to sell to multiple segments. Right. Just get one, right? Yeah, we have like 12 people. What do you get? You know, like, what are you going to tell your head of marketing? Right. Cause you know, if you're focused on SMB, you need a marketing, you know, you need a website that, that pulls, right? And you need a product that's relatively self-serve and it's more of a transactional sales process, right? If you're going enterprise, well, then we're doing see a bear, shoot a bear. The website's about validation. You got Gartner quotes, you know, you're not generating demand there and you, then you're relying on the rep to, you know, go outbound, you know, with an SDR perhaps. ABM, be careful with ABM. It turns into like, you know, participation T-ball. Everybody gets a trophy, right? And there are no losers or winners. Um, so, and then the product could be more complex, but then you need to have all the enterprise 80s, right? It's got to be scalable. It's got to be secure. It's got to be, you know. So, but when you get to be a little larger, it is often the case that you're across segments, right? And so um, I think it's important when you look at those segments, um, to understand those ratios within them because they're they're not the same um and because when you look at segmentation you have to figure out missed pockets you know like i'll have this conversation every day uh yeah so our enterprise team is above 2000 and uh, our down team is below 2000. i'm like well what the hell kind of segment is that because like below like 400 employees that's like inbound, lower ASP, transactional, um, you're measuring activity, your reps are on monthly plans. I know what that looks like. You start getting like 1,000, 2,000 employees. We're actually talking about a solution sale. You're probably forecasting by deals using a methodology. So what's interesting is being very careful about segments. You know, at Salesforce, we started, um, we had, in the early days, up market was above like 200 employees and down market was below 200.
0: Did you always define it based on number of FTEs at the company? That was your delimiter?
1: Well, I, you, I think you have to you have to think about um, what their aptitude to spend is. So at Salesforce, we sold CRM software. So you would look at companies, right? You'd figure out how many employees they have. And by the verticals, you would know what percentage of uh, employees were in sales service or marketing. So I think you have to figure out, What's the addressable spend or aptitude to spend within those organizations? Usually usually it's a proxy to FTEs. In MarTech and others, it's a little trickier if you're selling into e-commerce. And the rest of it, it's it's sort of on spend, which is a little harder to get. Um, but you have to think about missed pockets, right? Because if I have one salesperson that's selling below 500 employees, um, they're going to gravitate to what's easiest. So, for example, if you get a lot of inbound and it's 100 employees and below, they're going to focus on that, and they're not going to spend any time going outbound.
0: Cream skimming, it happens. Yeah.
1: My point is, as I look at sales capacity and sales capacity, um, I'm really figuring out what are the segments we're trying to optimize with the skill set we have. Um, as get companies get larger, we used to do a following math equation that was very useful. Um, it was a funny story. Like, you know, I would, I, I'd, I'd go to Mark and he'd be like, all right, well, what do we think we're going to do from a forecast perspective? And I'd be like, well, you know, based on the pipeline and this, and then I've got these ramped reps and these non-ramp reps. And then I've got these down market reps and up market reps, et cetera. He'd be like, okay, whatever, Brett, how many reps do we have? We have 20. He's like, okay, we're going to do $3 million this quarter. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's 50 K a person a month." On average, we need 50K a person. And you'd be like, what? But he'd be right. And so the interesting thing, and you'd be like, well, how could that be right? Because quotas could be higher or lower, but like it averages out. And so what we used to do in terms of figuring out where to put additional capacity is try to figure out what's performing. And so we would, and I recommend, I had this recommendation to a company in a couple hundred million dollars in revenue right now, which was look at your intersection of region versus segment. So I don't care. Let's say you've got Europe, Asia, United States, let's call it enterprise commercial SMB. And and I would say, please put in there, how much has our ARR grown year over year in that segment? And how much is our sales capacity grown year over year in that segment? Um, And are we above or below 50,000 a rep? And for those that One for those that are more than fifty thousand a month, hire more reps
0: for the territory, baby.
1: Yeah, for those that are less than fifty thousand, stop hiring, right? And go figure out what's going on there. And for those that you know um, that are above fifty thousand, we'd look at those that ARR was growing faster than capacity and say add more capacity. And the thing we did uh, in the days of Salesforce, we were as religious about forecasting our business as we were about forecasting sales hiring. So we had a complete sales forecasting hiring and holding people accountable. And on every weekly forecast call, we started with the deal forecast or the pipeline forecast. And then we went into the hiring forecast. Um, and I feel like somewhere along the way, we sort of lost, um, you know, um, that and look at, I think the final key point, and this is what companies are struggling with a little bit right now is they do a reset and there's been sort of thing, which is like, if you have a sales led growth model and you're primarily up market, your growth next year is tied to the additional capacity you hired this year. Yeah. So you add 10% sales capacity this year, you're going to grow, you're not going to grow more than 10% next year in general the reality is I think for some companies right now, there's been a retraction and as, as the buyer environment may come back or as companies get far better at tuning their sales motions and finding better parking, market, it might more, but like that's the thing. And the challenge is if you're up market, you're trying to manage burn, it's a little scary, right? Cause you're, you're investing a lot in these people that probably don't ramp for like nine months and you're, you're outlaying a lot of burn with the hope that it pays off. And that's always sort of the challenge.
0: How did you plan for sales rep comp at that stage? Uh, It was early on. Did it kind of feel like you were throwing a dart at the wall?
1: No. I mean, look, we were the, you know, sort of, I was author of some of the first sales comp plans in the world. Um, Now, what was interesting was, I think Mark was clever about this and thoughtful. Look, at the end of the day, and if you go on my website, you'll see I've written a lot around sales comp, and there's, a, there's sort of a guide to it. It's really good. Look, uh, there are three components. Remember, we were the first in SaaS, right? People like, um, what were the three components? One, what was somebody committing to on an annual? What were they signing up to? What was the length of their commitment? And when did we get cash? And cash was important to us, remember? We didn't raise a lot of venture. And we needed to fund data centers. And we need and we need to pay our commissions. So you know, there are three components cash, you know, whether you know, so cash is basically is it, is it annual up front? Are you is it you getting paid monthly, or are you getting paid quarterly? Uh there's multi year, where somebody committing for more than one year. And then there was ACB. What was the annual contract value? Like what was the the thing of the annuity? In the early days, the comp plan components were ACV equals multi-year equaled cash. So you would make, so let's say you closed a $100,000 deal. You would have three different quota buckets, one for ACV multi-year and cash, and you would get as much for getting cash up front and getting a year of multi-year than you would for actually closing the deal, which was great. Wow. Wow, okay. Yeah, which was great. The only challenge is we moved up enterprise and Merrill Lynch comes in and Joe Williams still hates me to this day. And they say, hey, I'll do five years. I'll give you three years cash up front. Suddenly, you know, Joe's going to go about, you know, and we had huge accelerators in each. And I was like, the history of Salesforce. I'm like, Joe, I'm not paying you millions of dollars because Merrill Lynch has no problem. They want to commit to multi-year and they have plenty of cash. And so you start to adjust that.
0: When would the accelerators usually kick in? Like, do, do you have to be past 100% achievement to start getting juice?
1: It's a past 100. We don't, I, I don't, we don't believe in like negative acceleration. You know, there are people that like, oh, you don't get to 100% until you get to 100. So it's lower than accelerates.
0: No, that always sucks.
1: But accelerate beyond 100. You know, generally in my mind, if someone does two times their number, they should make three times their OTE. And, and look, the reality is the math works, Right. Um look I think the trick in some of those ratios as you start to segment is you don't actually know like if I go to a company today and say hey in your mid market what percentage of your companies do you think will do a second year what percentage will give you cash up front and you know you may not know and so like in the early days it's different you know like in the early days like if I'm doing a startup now I'm like like giving somebody a quota because it makes us feel comfortable on a quota capacity model like we're kind of kidding ourselves, right? And so, uh, you know, you started. I'm like, give him 20% of ACB. Don't pay him.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Well, you know what I always say? Maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. <laughs> I'm there right now. But there is a solution and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using Theropass' compliance and audit solution. Theropass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with Theropass. From onboarding with dedicated experts, to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs. You can have complete confidence in your Thoroughpass compliance journey. Thoroughpass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to High Trust and SOC two to ISO two seven zero zero one. Woo! If you need PCI DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, Thoroughpass can hook you up. With Thoroughpass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at Thoroughpass.com. That's T H O R O P A S S.com. Tell me, boy, CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. What a, How did yeah. you think about the ratio of quota to OTE? So like a rule four of thumb. To one. Four to one? Four to one. Okay.
1: You get below four to one, it's very dangerous. And a lot of companies have done that over the last four or five years. Basically, if you do the math, um, if you're paying, if it's four to one from an OTE, including variable, it, on, if you hit your number, right? Take your base. So let's say I am 100k base, 100k variable. So at plan I make 200. Quota's got to be 800, but not in the first year because they get a ramp in the rest of it. But on a steady stream, it's four to one. You get below four to one, it gets very it gets very expensive
0: because you have to cover all the other pod resources, like you were saying.
1: Well, it just makes it it makes it very hard for your your efficiency numbers to make sense, right? And then you know the other key part as part of any of this SaaS model is retention, right? Because like, if you got a leaky, like, you know, back in the day, like, how can you afford Brett to pay this rep the same they would make selling on premise at Oracle? How can you pay them this much money with the accelerate curves? I was like, cause I don't pay them on renewals, right? They become a cash machine in year two or year three, but that, but that assumes you've got very good retention.
0: And four to one, that's when you're probably starting out, but as a company gets larger and has more products to sell. So my brother is uh, an enterprise rep at AWS and I always joke with him like, Tyler, it's got to be the easiest thing to hit your quota because you have 125 different things you can sell. Uh, I imagine at Salesforce, the the ratio must be higher. It must be like eight to one or nine to one, right?
1: No, you just hire more reps. Oh.
0: And is that why uh, there was a recent article that came out about that, right?
1: No, eight to ones no, no, but eight to one, eight, now, look, we love to talk about whiny sales people and they don't prospect, et cetera, et cetera. It's friggin hard job,
0: it is, I hate sales
1: <laughs> no, it's four it's four to one no it's it's four to one, look because here's the deal early on, your territory's massive, you might have five hundred named accounts as the company succeeds, what's the job, like what's the trick? You take half their ter you, you take their accounts away every year and give it to someone else. But you have to give them more product to sell. You don't like I give you more product to sell, and therefore your quota goes up. No, I'm taking your accounts away. I'm taking your patch away because I'm you know I'm you know I'm splitting and dividing, splitting and dividing. One guy had East and in three years. There's ten people that have the East, so I've taken that. You have one tenth the territory, so I need. So no, I don't. I don't like mucking around with ratios and quotas. reps.
0: That's a good soundbite. I like that a lot. And how do you think about the nuances in staffing model? So I remember you said like the ratio should be four to one potentially for, uh, in general. I mean, does that change though for enterprise or SMB or does it work across the whole company?
1: Well, staffing or comp model,
0: sorry, comp model, comp model,
1: comp model should work regardless of the role four to one. Right. Um, In SMB, it could be a little higher if it's a really transactional model. I think one of the challenges that we faced since COVID was pre COVID, you know, you might start a company in New York City and San Francisco and or Boston, and you'd be like, all right, I got my reps in here, and then you realize the cost of living is too high. And so then you would go to Omaha or you go to Austin. Not Austin's not cheap anymore, you go somewhere else. But you know, with COVID to some extent normalized back, suddenly it was like salaries are normalized across the country. Like it was weird. Like why, you know, but, um, I think four to one is a ratio you should use across all of your segments.
0: Okay. I know a lot of people are building their comp plans for next year, so that's a helpful one to have.
1: Yeah. They can go look on my, on bonfire VC on the fuel page. There's a whole guide to how to think about comp plans.
0: And I pulled a quote from one of the pieces you, you wrote there, Brett, and you said a rule of thumb in SaaS is to grow your reps 30% to 40% per year to deliver enough revenue growth to outrun your expenses. Can you break that one down a little bit?
1: Depending on where you are as a company, well, let's say you're mid to later stage or a public company, et cetera. We have seen a, a reversion in the last couple of years to uh, EBITDA and profitability, right? Which was sort of, you know, nobody really cared about earnings, it was all about growth. But assuming assuming your eBIT assuming your your efficiency is is on par with another company and your public or your late stage, et cetera, those that grow higher are valued more, right? Because when people are investing, they're investing in the future va- future cash streams you might generate. And so my point being is, if you want to grow thirty percent next year and you're a well performing company today, You need to add 30% sales capacity this year. And so the additional sales capacity you add in a given year will drive what your growth is next year. Now, the only difference to that is if you are purely an SMB business, right? you can add capacity um, early within a year that will generate because I just think about what's the average ramp time of reps. You know, generally SMB reps, unless you have just like crazy inbound and you can't even meet the demand, you know, three to four months, enterprise, nine to 12, mid-market in between, right? So I think generally people, investors are looking for software companies to grow at least 30% a year and it's all tied to your sales capacity.
0: And uh, when you modeled sales capacity or helping your portfolio companies do it, how do you factor in for attrition?
1: You mean A- ATTRITION?
0: Yeah, because I, I, I think anecdotally in startup land, companies have an average attrition rate of 20%. And then if you look specifically for uh, the sales teams, it's probably about 35
1: Well, it's an interesting thing. There's two ways to think of modeling. Um, attrition is real. But at the end of the day, what CFOs and others will go do is they'll put together all these slides. Here's our number for next year. Here's our quota on the street. And and then this is the revenue we'll generate. And then they set the rest of the OPEX of the company at that, (laughs) okay, of that revenue. So my general view is I don't care about your sales attrition. You better go deliver that revenue or you better be watching quarter by quarter because we can't afford that OPEX. And so... Um, one key guidance in with CFOs and others when I look at a high level is what their assumption is of the the performance against quota on the street for next year. And anything beyond like seventy five percent, and I feel I see 80, it's super aggressive, right? It's super aggressive, and the odds of you like not hitting that and then therefore being upside down from a cash perspective is high. And so within that, what I think about attrition is either on your quota on the street forecast, from a finance perspective, you should bake in attrition. Um, and in the capacity planning, we should somewhat bake in, we should bake in attrition because the reality is for my sales manager or in a multi tiered sales organization, if there's an AVP, an SVP, et cetera, I'm not giving them quota relief if they have attrition. Like it's their job to manage poor performers out and bring new ones in. Um but to some extent in a multi-leveled sales organization, they're given they're given some overassign that gives them window there, right? The concept of overassign is look, if you know, if full quota on the street is $100 million, um, like we're not our financial plan's probably set at $80 million, 80% of that. You know, your CRO probably takes, um, oh, I don't know, 85 to 90 million. And then he's got an AVP or RVP. So there's over a sign within there. Um, But, you know, you should model attrition. But I hold people accountable to hitting their number and being smart about moving people out. The one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to ignore it. Because you don't want to create this incentive for a manager to keep a quota bucket, a rep in seat who's ramped, that's in the model, but they're terrible. Right? And then if they have to go hire a new one, they've lost that capacity. Like they should go replace that rep. So you should just be thoughtful about how you work through that.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio. The only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor grade reporting packages. Visit maxiocom run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function. Purchasing and Supplier Management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io, that's tropicapp.io, to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you. We'll come back to sales in a second, but I did want to touch on the technical side of the house and any ratios you have there. You'd mentioned the twenty percent around engineers who actually have their fingers in the keyboard. Um, can can you explain that ratio? And do you have any other helpful ratios? Maybe even like the number of product people you should have to to engineers. How do you size that up?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, at one point at Salesforce we had the inmate run the asylum where I actually ran product. <laughs> there was- I thought I did a pretty good job. Um, uh, look, I don't think this the wrong way if you're not a developer, you're not a rep. Everybody's important and special, right? Like the Lego movie, everything is awesome. But software companies build software and sell software. So the two employee bases you have to get right are your dev team and your sales team. And yes, I know if the marketing team isn't great, we don't get inbound. And if we don't have product management, okay, fine. But if I look at the sort of like economic units that we need to make sure we have enough of and are great, and the rest of our jobs is to make sure that these groups are really great, are salespeople and developers. So at steady stream, just like I want 20% of the company to be account executives, 20% of the employees should be developers. Why? Well, remember we talked about we're in a market. We want to make sure our product is competitive. Oh, I want to grow my sales team 30%, um, you know, to drive the required growth. But remember, I'm pulling territories away. And so therefore, I need to give them more product. I need to make sure I have enough deaf capacity to make sure the product we have today is competitive. I need to make sure the product we have today keeps pleasing our existing customers so retention is high. And I need to make sure that they actually deliver additional product for additional capacity to go sell. And when those two numbers get out of whack, something's off on the cost basis of a company. And I know there are many people could go, oh, but, 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 but no, like, I don't agree. So, and then in terms of ratios, hey, look earlier, like see, I, when I invested seed stage, right? Uh, or series A, you actually, you have more developers because you're just building your product and your infrastructure, et cetera.
0: Yeah, you have nothing to sell yet or very little to so. sell.
1: Yeah. I mean, you'll see R&D is north of 30%, 35% of your total OPEX, right, in the early days, if not more. In terms of ratios, um, same thing. The same ratio I have for AEs goes for devs. Look across the entire R&D org. If we're spending more than 50% on not code, code writing devs, something's off. Stop. These are simple rules to follow. You look at them and go, oh, and then you'll dig in and you'll go, oh, What's going on here?
0: So it's probably a span of control type thing.
1: Why do I have 53 TPMs and 5 developers? What the hell are we managing <laughs> here? Right? That, that was a joke. That was a joke for my dev folks that, you know. They're like, "I'll be the scrum master." Okay, good for you. Um look, general ratio, uh interesting thing about devs is there is there is some Physical limit of how many devs can be on a scrum team. Beyond it becomes effective. So if I look at a, a usual scrum team of like three to five developers, um, I like to have uh, a PM, uh, a junior, at least a junior level PM per scrum team, right? They could a PM could manage two Scrum teams, but then what happens is the PM is just more of a project manager and not really thinking about what are we building, why are we building it, and why is, you know, and, and what do we think this is going to do the business. So I like a one to five ratio of PM uh to scrum team. Um I le- I like at least half uh, a designer uh to scrum team. And then there are different ratios based on QA, depending on you know how lax or um how strident you are on, on devs writing quality code, but it's, those are generally the ratios.
0: Just to rehash that. So if you have five engineers coding the product, you generally want maybe 1 PM and then you probably want half a designer.
1: Well, you, there's no such thing. You can't, there's nobody walking in. I'm half a designer. I don't want the, Hey, I do design work for the marketing team and the dev team. And my, I would just say, let's just say we have 10 developers. If we have 10 developers, I want two PMs. I want at least one designer. Um, um, there's probably somebody, you know, put DevOps aside, depending on your infrastructure. Um, you might have one program manager trying to make sure you're rolling out Agile and all the JIRAs managed correctly. Um, and then QA, um, depending on your organization, you know, at it, Salesforce, but this is way back in the days. Um you know, like a three-to-one ratio between dev and QA.
0: From running operating plans over the last 10 years, I have noticed that I feel like the product teams have gotten a lot larger. And I'm, I won't say that they're bloated necessarily because I don't always technically know what they're doing, but there has been a proliferation of junior PMs, senior PMs, designers, and um, in, in the la- or in technical PMs too. I don't know if you've observed that.
1: Look, I think there's been a bloat across all orgs. Um, I think the most important thing in an R and D org, and the product org, is do they think like a business? So a model that we did at Salesforce and I helped drive because I was a business guy going into product. I I was a dork in high school, like I went to Atari camp, but um, that's a that's the therapy session for another day.
0: A sales guy who codes.
1: In my general view, when I think of a strong product leader, is that they are a general manager of the business. And it is their job to be very clear around what market we're going after, who is our customer, and why is what we're building better, um, and why we'll be successful. And then to be very intentional around what are those elements that drives that. And, And then orient and align and motivate the entire organization around that. Um, the way I think about this is um, I, I, I've written something called um, three verbs and three adjectives. And so when I meet with people and then they, they go through like their decks and the rest of it. And I said, put that all aside. There's somebody using your product and they go to a bar and their friends also in the same role. And they just, and the guy coming in the bar doesn't want to talk shop. They want to catch up on family or sports or whatever. And your customer He's all fired up. He's like, dude, I got to tell you about this company. i like, you like, what are you doing, dude? I just want to relax. No, I got to tell you about this company. It's amazing. And the guy goes, all right, what's so amazing? What does it allow you to do? And the guy's like, it allows me to do A, B, and C. Those are the three verbs. The guy's like, okay, cool. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. They allow me to do it in this manner, the three adverbs. And so what I ask product teams is, in a year, When that person shows up in the bar, what are they saying about your product that they're so fired up? And work back from there. If I have a product org or team that does that, and we are then therefore aligned on what we're doing, and we now know what priorities are, and we understand what we, you know, what are we doing? A technical debt, functional debt, customer's request, and going after new markets of differentiation because they all map to that. I think you'll find an organization that's not overstaffed organizations, but that's not most R&D orgs. There's like a lot of features and we're project managing, and da, 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 and then we're rolling stuff out. And then the other reality is, and look, I love Lean Startup. I love Agile. I love monthly sprints, blah, 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 blah. But when I hear CEO goes, how often do you release code? You're like, every day. And I go, okay, come on. You release bug fixes <laughs> every day? You're fixing regressions every day? I release code every day. And I said, I'm going to tell you now, that in a year from now you will not release code every day and you'll move to monthly. And at one point you'll move to quarterly. And they're like, no way. You're an old dude. You don't know better. Yes. Back in your day. That's not how we do shit. And I said, yeah, here's, what's going to happen. You're just going to roll out incrementally better stuff. It's tactical. It's not going to change it. And as you build out your org and you're, Your go-to-market org is not going to know have any sense of what's different in the products. You're going to build all this innovation. You're going to wind that. Close rates have gone down. And your customers can't absorb that rate of change. And then you're going to start being very thoughtful around, like, what are the big things we're going to do in the next couple of years that I have to start now versus the things I tackle now? And they always, at some point, move to monthly and quarterly. So anyways, don't get me on my rant. But that's my rant. And so when I see things, orgs that are staffed, in any org that's overstaffed, it's poorly run. It it doesn't have focus. It doesn't have alignment. And what it doesn't have is, like, what do priorities mean? What's the most important thing about writing priorities? People are like, well, the order of what we do. No, the most important thing of priorities is what's not on that page. And that was a big thing at Salesforce. By writing down what we needed to do in order, and it couldn't be a long list of a useless many, but the vital few, we basically explicitly said we are not doing any of these things, and we can come back and revisit them. And so, that's my general view on staffing. But you did caught you only caught me you caught me early in the morning with only one cup of coffee.
0: Hey, I got to ask you. So, I'm a CFO, and I'm brokering the operating plan between the sales side, which you've led, and then the product side, which you also have experience leading. And it's always the song and dance of trying to figure out when the product is going to be ready to actually sell off the back of the truck. How did you deal with that at Salesforce or how do you coach your, your portfolio companies today to actually make sure that we are accountable to having revenue show up in a line item when we said it's going to actually go live?
1: Well, first and foremost, I hold my product leaders accountable to an ARR number.
0: Say more about that.
1: When you get to a certain size, let's say you have three products. Let's use Salesforce analogy. Sales cloud, marketing cloud, service cloud. Running product, um, we would have executive offsites where I would come up as the leader of the product org, and I would explain that the sales org either beat or missed its number, the ARR number. And then I would break it down by cloud. And then I would hold and then the sales cloud or service cloud or marketing cloud leader would have to come up and explain why the sales org under or over-delivered. And was it the fact that we didn't have enough pipeline? Was it the product wasn't differentiable enough? Was it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd be like, well, why is that? Because what is a product person actually? Who actually works for a product person? Like nobody. Like a few PMs? Maybe designer docs works in your org, and maybe there's product marketing, but the entire rest of the org doesn't work for them. But I would have them do that so that they were aligned, and it was their job to go out and make sure the organization aligned and were fired up and pushing your product. Not a lot of orgs do that. Did they actually have a quota? Well, they have a number.
0: Yeah, but they, they're measured against it.
1: I mean, they don't. They're not a sales comp plan, but like if they're if they didn't hit that number, um consistently, they were no longer they were no longer at the company, right? They didn't get to point fingers at product. But look, if they, there wasn't enough sales capacity to hit this or in marketing, um, we didn't have a dedicated product marketer or there wasn't a focus, the idea was to drive alignment and just come back to the company as this. But, you know, if I'm putting a sales plan together, depending on what's, like when you when you ask that question, like what stage company are you thinking? Like how big of a company are you?
0: So I'll I'll, I'll use my own company, for example. So we have two products that we're currently selling and next year we're trying to forecast. It's actually a longer term plan, but we have three other products that we've been developing and I'm trying to put pen to paper on when I can actually put a dollar amount next to those new line items.
1: Well, first and foremost, there's a question around uh, what your release process is on building product. And what confidence you have in your product team when they say, I'm going to deliver this product by, it's going to be an alpha in Q1, it's going to be a beta in Q2, and released in Q3, right? Now, my general thing is that if you don't have a product in alpha this year, I ain't, I'm not predicting a lot of revenue next year. Yeah. Yeah, because the key issue I remember these days, I would try to get the sales org to sign up for a quota for this product. like, well, where is this product? Well, it's coming out in, in, in uh, the beginning of Q3, so can you assign quota or the rest of it?
0: you get getting the chicken or the egg kind of combo.
1: I think the more important question in year one is, if I've sold product one or product two, forget how much we want to sell of this. The question is, what are you doing as an organization that if I'm a rep who's become competent, what do we want reps to be in our organizations? We want them to be irrationally. We want them to be moderately competent. Although we should build sales machines and ratios, assuming they're not. But we want them to be moderately competent and irrationally confident. That's what we want. Right? We don't, you know, that's why there's a different, you know, it's like who get them all excited. But the question is like, I'll give you a Salesforce example. These guys were making money day, hand over fist, sell them to the VP of sales. And I'm like, i am got a contact center product. It's called service cloud. They're like, service cloud? I don't talk to the VP of service. They don't even dress like the people I sell. And you're coming into the space where there's like these incumbents, like right now and others, like, why am I going to waste any of my time going to talk to a new buyer? And wait, it's a different discovery and it's a different pitch. Like, oh, Right, and what what do we not want to do with reps if they're in their zone? Don't force them to do contact switching. So I think the most important question is: if you've got these new products coming, is it same buyer at your company, CJ?
0: Yeah, it is
1: same buyer. And then the next question is: um, Would you target those at initially install base? Who can be more forgiving? Because with install base, in theory, if you've got a new product. Hopefully because they've brought product one or two from you, you know, and they buy product three, one plus one, you know, plus one equals greater than three. And so it doesn't need to be the best in class in its segment because the fact that it's integrated is better. So is are you going after your install base to start with? Yes. Yeah. And so I think the most important question is how are we going to train and enable our salespeople? Right? And it's sort of like is it is it a core product? And so then the other question is, I ask people, you run running these new products. Of the products they've sold today, if they sell this, what percentage of the ACV, what does it represent? The problem is a lot of companies roll out, like, I got this product. It's another $0.10. Cents. Another product. It's this $0.10. Cents. Another product. It's this 10. Rep doesn't care. Like, unless the additional products, unless they can make, like, 50% more, off the core product they just don't care and then the problem is you got this bottle cfos are unwinding this crap the proliferation of hunter farmers like oh i gotta put in all these farmers and account managers etc like no you don't have a your fucking product strategy is messed up you don't have enough product like there's not enough once you got your first dollar you haven't created enough tam or offerings go get another dollar if you got another dollar, I promise you, except the low end, your rep would go sell the hell out of that. You think it's easier for him to sell or she to sell to their existing customer versus net new? So, because what I'm trying to figure out, like, is it meaningful enough, or if it's small, is the what's the what's the playbook? Is it oh go sell fries with that? Oh, I've been selling you the hamburger. Would you like fries? So, you know, let's sell it up front. Or it's we're gonna go back to our install base and monetize this. But I like for me, I look at that more. Um, I'm I'm very leery, though, of a financial plan of predicting, putting in a lot of incremental revenue, at least in B two B software, in you know my financial plan for next year on some product that doesn't exist yet, that's not in the market yet, that my sales team is yet to sell, um, in the financial plan. So generally, what CFOs do is they sandbag it in the first year, and they should.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of risk. I mean, the technical risk, can you build it? But then the execution risk, can you actually sell it? That's a good segue to my my next one, because you've talked a lot about the importance of long-term forecasting. Um, And you were just saying there, like, first year with a new product, you should probably sandbag it a little bit. But I imagine that you want to see what this product is going to become to see if it's even worth building. Like. could this become something substantial here? So do you, when you look at a founder's annual plan, do you always ask for, well, what, what does this look like in three years? What does this one year
1: set me up to do next year? Never. we invest. So it's interesting, right? A lot of the advice I'm giving it is more of like the growth stage, public company stage, et cetera. I invest at the seed stage at Bonfire. So we invest with like 300K revenue, 500K revenue, 10 people in the company. Um, and so like, and we don't know anything.
0: Yeah, five-year projection is uh, hope and a dream to a certain extent.
1: It's ridiculous. Um, and look, I'm the first person to over-operationalize a business that doesn't exist yet, so I always try to resist this. <laughs> it's, it's more
0: fun that way.
1: Yeah. But when we look at investing, look, the parallels of venture is that... But look, Look, I love all the founders, but the economics of our model is that, you know, uh, a few companies in a fund generate all the return. And so that I have to have the belief that this is a business that could be worth at least a billion dollars at some point. And I said that as opposed to revenue because I'm not getting into like multiples and the rest of it. But, you know, if I just do the, you know, most companies, I think if you, There was an interesting analysis last week about, or this week about, if you get rid of all the ups and downs, the medium companies go public at 200 million revenue and they trade at six times next 12 months. Fine.
0: Yeah, I saw
1: that. I have to have a belief that that's true. And so when I invest, I do dig in with the founder to understand what would need to be true for that to happen. And this is more of a higher level thing, right? And it's different. For people that are introduced in that are entering in a existing category. In that case, we have to believe they have a better mousetrap and they can execute better. Or it's a brand new category, it doesn't exist. So one, at a high level, we have to understand what must be true. Right? And a lot of that is TAM, like who are these buyers? Are they buying something similar today? Do they have a spend? And what percentage would you need to kind of go get of that? So that's we when we work with our founders at the seed stage, we're really looking at like the next two years, right? Cause at the end of the day, they've got three to $5 million of capital and it needs to last at least 24 months and they need to go on this dance of both showing significant growth and repeatability. Right. But, and so like our job from C to A is, do we have a motion that works? Get me one motion that works. We found one buyer set with one product offering with one guard of market motion that seems to work. Because, at A, what people want to know is if I give you $10 million and I invest that, do we feel like that will yield? And the challenge in the last five to seven years, like people raised at $1 million in revenue um, and they went to go and You know, spend a bunch of money, hire eight reps and 12 SDRs, and they were like, oh, God, I don't have market fit, and everybody's sad. They don't make their number, and then they called the CEO toxic, and, you know, and then you lose that culture of winning. Um, If you are a growth stage company, you're considering going public. I think this is a very critical exercise. Something We had a lot of companies go public the last three to four years that blew up. They weren't successful IPOs. Partially, companies have gone public much later, right? What happened? Like 10 years ago, companies would go public at 50 to 100 million in revenue. Then there's a lot of money that went into private, the, the late growth stage, and so they took up a bunch of that growth. you know. And then companies are going to public at much bigger valuations, et cetera. Um, they, the, a lot of these companies, I don't think, sat down and said, for us to grow 30% over the next 5 to 10 years, what must be true? And if you don't understand that, you shouldn't go public, Right, because if you're not confident that you can continue to grow, then you're going to miss your first or second earnings call, and then you lose all institutional support, and then you trade for less than cash. Like going public isn't the destination. Being a successful public company is the successful destination, and therefore, what I tell CFOs and product teams and executives to do is, okay, today you're two hundred million dollars in revenue. Um, you're in this TAM or this market segment, and that segment by these regions and by these segments. And for you to be a $2 billion company in X years, what must be true? Where is that coming from? Is there enough in this segment that you're in that you can expand in and that's your assumptions? Or do you need to go into additional segments? And when we were less than 50 million. Mark had us do this exercise for 5 billion. And we're like, he's crazy. What's he talking about? You know, because Salesforce is larger than the size of what analysts said was the CRM market when we were there, the entire CRM market. And we had a mid-market SFA product, and I was like, this guy Looney Tunes, but clearly he's not. Um, And that's when we sat down and said, well, here's the SFA market. Here's the marketing automation. I'm not that smart. Here's the contact center market. Here's the analytics market. Here's the integration market. All those people are still on premise, and they're not moving to the cloud. And then I was like, okay, how do I then look at that and then figure out a build-by-partner strategy? We launched the App Exchange. We moved the – the we really exposed the Force.com platform as a metadata customization platform because um, the reality was there was no way that we could go build the best product with the best UI. And so we made a real bet of being the platform and then other people on that platform. Then if now Salesforce becomes the hub of what you're doing, you know, I can feel less sad that maybe like the UX isn't the best on module A or B. And I don't think enough people do this. And I think it's a really good exercise. I have a really good exercise. You may do the exercise and realize, shit, I don't have that. Well, good. Go be a PE company. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being a good company, hitting EBITDA 40, and having a good exit, right? Where companies get in trouble late stages, they actually are more like a PE company like the TAM just isn't there
0: but they don't admit it.
1: But they operate like a venture company are going for growth and then they burn a bunch of capital and then they're all sad. Right? I think so much of like discontent at late stage companies is not just not being aware of what your identity and potential is and then executing a plan within it.
0: That's an amazing soundbite. I can't thank you enough for doing this.
1: I just made that I just I just I just made that up. It's pretty good.
0: That was good. That was good, and I think we're seeing it play out today, where there are a lot of late stage companies where it should be looked at as a success, and people should be high fiving, but instead they're sad because they had an identity crisis. They were trying to be something different, and they also boxed themselves uh, in, into a corner where the only exit strategy out at this point would be an IPO because the prep stack is just so big.
1: Yeah, but like you know, I have founders that like raised at five hundred million dollars, and there's a round to be done at two fifty. And I'm like, great, you got free money at that valuation. You've got people who want to continue to invest in the business. Let's go. Like, you know, but yes, people forget. Like, I used to think that like private equity was bad and me and you failed. Like, that's that's ridiculous. You know, that's like in my, you know, it's Ricky Bobby. If you're not first, you're not you're last. That's ridiculous. Like it's an iconic company. You did what very few people did. You probably generated generational wealth, not just for your family, but your, but your descendants and you probably the number of people that work at your company whose lives are forever changed. Right. And so like, it's all good.
0: That's success. It's all relative.
1: It's all relative.
0: Thank you, sir. Where can people find you and and get more Brett?
1: Well, they got to be careful. There's only so much Brett you want. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, you know, you, I'm on bonfirevc.com if you want to connect, um, you know, check me on LinkedIn. Um There's only one Queen. Well, there actually is another guy named Brad Queener. He's like a world famous uh, indoor lacrosse player. Um, Who knew?
0: Yeah. I So I, I was going to bring this up in the intro, uh, but I didn't know if it would be awkward. So I was trying to find all your podcasts, and I accidentally yeah. clicked on like two of this lacrosse guy. And I was like, I didn't know That's that. Great. I, was,
1: <laughs> I was like, this guy's a VC and a fantastic athlete. <laughs> no, no, I'm five six, dude. There's, there's, I <laughs> I was good in high school in sports that you could do with reputation, but they didn't require any athletic. Uh, and look, I invest, um, you know, we invest in B2B software companies with three to $500,000 of software. We're their first investor. We will write a large check. We're on their board. Um, and we do that because we love the journey. And C to A is really hard. And we have seen... We are wise, not because we went to a mountaintop, but because anything a B2B software founder wants to do, we have messed up 10 ways to Sunday, right? So like our job is to avoid them doing the same mistakes that we made.
0: Thanks. This is so much fun for me, Brett. Thanks, man.
1: All right. All right, CJ.
0: Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Hsu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.